Hey y'all, welcome back to Love, Sex, and Applied Behavior Analysis, the podcast where pop culture and ABA meet. Yay! All right, so this week on Love, Sex, ABA, we're going to talk about work. Um, we're going to talk about some of the struggles that uh, our generation faces, kind of being the new generation that um, is a departure from the ways of old. We're going to talk about intersectionality. We're going to talk about marginalization. We're going to talk about um, personality and how we interject that into workspaces. And if we're able to, we're going to talk about experiences versus uh, pay versus acknowledgement and value. We're going to talk about it all. And hopefully some of the things we talk about during this episode will resonate with you. We look forward to hearing your feedback on it. Hey guys, it's Jamie. Here I am yet again on Love, Sex, ABA. Thank you for having me one more time, babe. Um, this is kind of like a, I think a lot of the episodes that I end up being on are like bonus episodes. Um, just because well, we end up having co-host this season. I okay. <laughs> um, just because we we sit here and we have so many great conversations and we'll think to ourselves, like, man, we should really record this. Mm-hmm. So what prompted this week's episode is really talk about um work mm-hmm. and some of the struggles that I know Cam and I have faced here in um, Hawaii in in our professional setting that has also affected us personally. And I know that we cannot be the only one. So we decided, you know what, let's record this and see what what feedback we get. Yeah. So where are we starting, babe? Um, When you hear the quote, those who can't do teach or those who can't do coach, like those kind of quotes, that whole idea that like, you know, if you can't do it yourself, sometimes um, you end up being somebody's teacher of doing that. What kind of like comes to mind when you think of that? I honestly think uh, operating in your in your strengths mm-hmm. and you also have to like acknowledge what your strengths are and what they're not. Yeah. So you can either <clears throat> sharpen those tools or you can rely on those who have um uh, what, what you lack yeah right yeah. but i think in professional settings and this is one of the experiences that i've had here is that we're not taught to pull especially in the military we're taught that we have to know be and do it all mm. and if we don't then damn it you better pretend you do mm. and a lot of times it does a disservice to members on our team yeah. and it does a disservice to us because we stagnate ourselves stagnate ourselves because we don't um we're not we don't we don't we're not self-aware enough to be like, you know what? Um, I don't know this. Yeah. So we leave with our ego. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. What do you, what about you? Um, well, first I feel like that, that also is the same for behavior analysis as well. Um, I feel like many of us who are BCBAs, we typically aren't like the most humble of practitioners and that like, we aren't even aware of like what we don't know or, mm-hmm. um, we don't really talk, I think, enough about like the fact that so many of us, our only scope of competence is working with really one demographic of individuals versus true the hundreds behavior, of things this could apply you know, to, yeah. yeah, behavior science and behavior analysis. So yeah, that resonated with me. Um, when I think of that quote, I think of the people, some of the people in my field who went like right from undergrad straight up to, you know, some of these higher level positions without actually being 
RBTs or behavior technicians or line therapists or paraprofessionals, whatever it is that, um, without, without being direct line staff. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the, I think that is something I had have definitely been impacted by uh, professionally, kind of like the difference between like how I think clinically versus how they may think clinically, just because I've had the experience of being like that, that frontline, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. that frontline support person. Um, and I just think we think so differently and, mm -hmm. and not that one is, I, I don't, I want to be careful not to make it sound like one is better than the other or anything like that, but, but there is a different level yeah, of experience there and empathy and care mm -hmm. and understanding. And what that kind of creates is like this kind of juxtaposition of the people who have the most experience doing the work. Mm hmm not really being having the voice, right. Yeah. And being led by someone who was way less experienced to some, you know, in this degree. Um, and then <clears throat> them having like the privilege to really like, you make all this change that like them themselves are not going to be implementing. And there's like this huge disconnect there mm -hmm. that, that um, I think can oftentimes make people feel silenced professionally. And that's sure. a really hard place I think to kind of be. Yeah. I think you've seen me in my own struggle with that since we've been here. Actually, I mean, quite, quite literally the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, I describe it, um, and just in case anyone doesn't know, so I'm a medic here. I was in the hospital, and it was my first time in a hospital. I've been a ground-pounding medic for most of my career. And um, what I learned is that a lot of nurses in facilities like this come right out of nursing school and they go right into these leadership positions or a lot of medical doctors come right up out of med school and they go right into these leadership positions whereas you have medical service officers which are like you know your medical admin medical operations things like that um they take kind of the same route that that i took and that they um, really got experience in the operational mm. army um so they are to me better planners mm. just as i would be a better planner because you know my experience on the other side um but the disconnect there is that you have someone who went straight from medical school and now they are considered the boss they are considered the army planner when they don't have that army experience mm -hmm. and so um, with me and my peers being in the room and being the ones who have that planning experience because we're not in that position you know, we can't make positive effective change or we can't, you know, the context that we provide to um, a problem, mm -hmm. you know, for solutions isn't valued. So like you said, it's like we're, our experience is minimized, our skills are minimized, our, our input is devalued. And so it kind of, it, it's like gaslighting. Mm -hmm. And then at the, at the bare bones of it is depressing. And that has, I think, been a huge source of my depression since we've been here, is that, um, you know, the value that I would have in the operational army is not the same on this like side. This clinical kind yeah, of Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so for more context, what is, like, what is an example of something that you would be, when you say planning, what's an example mm -hmm. of something that you'd be planning? Um, like one of the big things was, like, the, the uh, mass COVID vaccinations, you know, I, we can plan medics, you know, as, as a experienced medic who's been in a while, we can plan just about anything. Yeah. 
um, because it's more than just, you know, pulling the, the, the vaccine out of the vial and sticking it in somebody's arm. It's more than that. There's a lot of like other logistical stuff that goes into it. And I'm like, that's where you need that, that medical service yeah. um, specialty. Um, and that was one of the big things. That was one of the big things. Just like, no, we should do A, B, and C. And they're like, well, nope, we're going to do this. And then it fails horribly. Yeah. And of course, they call on the more experienced people then and only then to come the fix it. But we're also, yeah, but yeah, we're also the ones executing. So now we have to execute and both clean up the mess and then execute our original <laughs> recommended All of plan. All quiet and never being able to say, I told you so. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then other people getting credit for for the positive change that yeah. comes from this. And, and, it, and it's just yeah. so much, so much resentment, mm -hmm. I think. Built, and that was just one of the few, but that was one of the biggest examples that I can think of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that happened, yeah. So one of the reasons why I'm really excited to do this particular episode is because um, at the peak of some of my professional trauma here, I kept on saying, like, I'm so, I hate that you can empathize, uh, like, what I with what I was going through, but I was also so grateful because seeing you kind of go through some of these things and we were kind of going through some of these things kind of concurrently but mm -hmm. seeing you kind of go through some of these things it made me feel like less crazy and it made me feel at least on the home front more understood because I'm like this is insane like all these things you know that were happening that we can kind of get to later um but it also kind of begged this question of like like you were saying in the introduction we can't be the only ones who are experiencing within you know our professional settings due to various realms of our intersectionalities of you know identities beliefs thoughts whatever we can't be the only ones who are experiencing like truly like professional trauma um without really having the support without having the prompt without having um the way to actually seek relief mm -hmm. because of capitalism where of course we have to go back to work yeah. and i think that's that's one of the things that is so um alarming to me i think being like a young professional working in a, a inherently capitalistic like white supremacist uh world in that like we don't get the privilege of being like a feeling relief Mm -hmm. Um, and I think what tends to happen, at least from my experience in my field is we all will like talk about this shit, like unilaterally, but Listen. it feels like I'm the, one of the only people in like my, my professional like organization yeah. that will also talk about this to the appropriate people who, um, kind of thinking about being effective and efficacy, right? Like thinking about the people who should be hearing this who also hold the power to kind of create this change. Mm -hmm. But because I'm the only, it makes and you, on top of that, I'm the black woman exactly, yeah. that I don't, I don't, when I'm really passionate about something, like I'm going to speak passionately all this stuff. But that comes across as angry. Yeah. And it's like, it, it really is like this professional uh, kind of gaslighting mm -hmm. that triggers like deep rooted pain and deep rooted um, anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And at the core of it, both of our jobs are rooted in um, serving other people. And it's like, I can't do that when my needs aren't being met. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I can't serve my RBTs. I can't serve my scholars. 
you can't serve the patients, you can't serve your soldiers. Like we can't do that when like, but we're expected to. Mm -hmm. We're still expected to operate in these high level uh, capacities um, without our needs being met professionally. And I think that kind of just adds to this kind of professional gaslighty kind of behavior. And it's really, it's something. Mm -hmm. It's really, really something. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to pull up this article that I just thought about. Um, so we'll take a quick break and okay. then we'll be right back. So I could not find the article <laughs> on our break. Um, but I'm pretty sure um, the kind of premise of this article was about high performing black women um, within our professional fields and the impact and the kind of implications that that typically has on us. What kind of, um, I don't know, what, what can you kind of speak to about being a high performer, um, but in an environment that, again, with respect specifically to our intersectionalities was meant to suppress us? is created a whole new level of self-consciousness, anxiety, depression, second guessing and questioning myself, you know? And I, I was saying this earlier and I I wish, I almost, I almost wish we were recording then because I'm not sure I could uh, recapture it here, but it creates this, I said, like an internalized, like this kind of self-violence mm -hmm. because now I am, I'm internalizing and overanalyzing every single interaction, you know, every, what I say, the decisions I make as a leader, um, my, how social I am or am not, how responsive I am or am not, like, you know, the jokes I make or, um, and this is kind of, this is, this is, it crosses over into my personal life now too, you know, my facial expressions or, you know, just I'm, I'm overanalyzing all of these things and cherry picking the negative things from all of these experiences. And I'm thinking about them all the time to the point that it creates this like mental chaos. It mm -hmm. creates uh, this, it kind of brings me to the brink of, of mental collapse mm -hmm. almost. Right. And it, I think that is, that has contributed to a lot of the downward spiral that I've had professionally that has bled into like my personal life. Cause now I find that I'm doing these things in my personal life, mm -hmm. you know? And cause I sat here earlier, I'm like, and when did this start to happen? Like, where does, yeah. where did I get this from? Yeah. And I think it stems from, like you said earlier, you're passionate and you're going to be the one to speak up. But as a black woman, that looks very different. As, as a matter of fact, an example that I use, I'm kind of going off track here, but this example that I used the other day was that, um, we are socialized to communicate and respond to our environment so, so differently. Mm -hmm. And I just wish that we had conversations about that. Yeah. So I was talking about, um, if, uh, say it's a black lady, she starts at a new job and she doesn't really talk a whole lot. Mm -hmm. She's not very friendly, you know, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Black people may perceive that as like, okay, well, she, you know, she keeps to herself. She doesn't yeah. really, you know, mess with anybody. She'll warm up to us. Whereas white people might perceive that as like, oh, she's not a team player. Yes. She doesn't want to be a, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it's, it's, then it, it as you said, it kind of makes, or I don't know if you said this, but it makes me question myself. Mm -hmm. 
And it makes me question everyone around me. I'm like, if I'm the only one speaking of, am I the only one who has these issues? Yep. But I can't be because you all are also complaining about these things. As we said, you're complaining laterally, but that does nothing to affect positive change. And the way that I think is that it's our duty as leaders to protect those below us from a lot of, you know, the just the, the stresses, especially during COVID, the stresses of um, the times and all we're doing is complaining amongst ourselves. We're not even, we're not talking to the people who could affect positive change. Yeah. But I am. Mm -hmm. And so now, because I am constantly the only one speaking up, now I am labeled as the black sheep. Yes. Or, and I say this all the time, I, you people will see me as a rebel vigilante, but depending on what side of the table you're on, I'm either going to be the rebel or I'm going to be a vigilante. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when it's, you know, protecting those below us or protecting the profession, you're going to be seen as the rebel. So now, going back to what I was saying in the big uh, just a moment ago, is now I am now I too am thinking of myself as a rebel. Yeah. I too am thinking that something is wrong with me, mm -hmm. and then that bleeds over into my friendships. That bleeds over into my interactions with my wife, to where I can't have a simple like just the other day uh, when the four of us were out, we went out with some friends. The four of us were out, and um, I got like half a thought out. I didn't finish the rest of the thought. And I'm like overanalyzing everyone's response to it, overanalyzing, well, why didn't I say this part? Why? And it's like it for the few moments after that, it, it kind of spoiled the good time for me mm. because I'm overthinking shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? I feel like this is for me why I keep on like preaching about like why I think it is just so important for us to one, create these safe spaces um, as much as we can. So like, whether that's, you know, weekly, I don't know, Zoom calls, like with people who are like-minded or share the same values or whatever, or if you are in a, in a kind of privileged position where you can really kind of intentionally choose like who you work with and where you work and all that stuff. Um, and why it is so important kind of to that, to some of the points that we've made, you know, this season on the podcast, but really more so probably last season of why safe spaces without white people, I think for us can be so important in that it is truly psychologically damaging to do this every day for truly. at least eight hours a day. And there is no escaping it. I have a mentee who has expressed the same things as you, that idea of, you know, feeling like they have to answer personal questions about themselves simply because like they're it's new, proper etiquette. Yeah. Their new coworkers yeah. asking them questions that really are actually personal or like really private or, um, you know, they feel like they have to laugh at jokes that aren't funny. They feel like they mm -hmm. have to kind of, um, like, you know, kind of kiss ass a little bit, like all these things that like, we shouldn't be Our made to feel that way. Yeah. yeah. And her job description. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. it's crazy. <laughs> and then there, I think what this also leads to be is like, not who is really excelling within their job function. It's like, who can kind of kiss ass the most. And that to me is where we kind of come to I wouldn't say kiss ass the most, but I'm going to say that who who we can relate to. 
Yeah. And it's a comment, and this is probably offensive now that I think about it, but I was running an event and one of our leaders who is a white male came out and he, I'm running the event. Mm-hmm. And this other, uh, one of my peers was just a participant. And they, I noticed were just, were, were just really, they're, they're really close. And I think they're probably close outside of work as well. But, and it kind of made me think, and, and it, this wasn't just a soul kind of event. I don't want yeah. people to be like, okay, well, that could have been so many other things. But this was like the, the, it, the when the epiphany happened for me, mm-hmm. is what I'll say. And, and I kind of realized like, he probably doesn't speak to me at all or as much because he, he may feel like he can't relate to me. Mm-hmm. Like, what can he talk to me about? He can talk to that guy about plenty of things, white male, white male. Mm-hmm. But in my mind, as a, as a leader, because mm-hmm. he is the leader of all of us, you have to find a way. Yeah. Well, and I think that's just it. I feel like a lot of us are either promoted or appointed or assigned or whatever to these positions. And I know for sure in ABA, I don't think we actually talk about what a leader is and what leadership actually is. I think right now it has become popularized to talk about burnout and ways to prevent it and all this stuff. And even that, you know, that's a whole never another tangent, but I believe there's only one group that I can think off the top of my head, the shaping leaders group that actually talks about how to shape a leader. Instead, Mm -hmm. when we pass our board exams, we're just appointed to these positions that quite honestly, most of us in our supervision were never, that was never included in our supervision. Mm -hmm. We were never taught how to actually be leaders. And I know in my field, I don't think many BCBAs, especially non-Black BCBAs, I don't think it was until us Black BCBAs, because you know how we are with language, how us as Black people are with language and culture, how we said it. Um, I don't even think that they probably were thinking of themselves even as leaders, let alone really kind of having a leadership style amongst their staff. So as you know, one of the things that I've experienced professionally is because I do have a leadership style and because I do have... um, like leadership standards, I don't know mm-hmm. what the word is, mm-hmm. that there has been resistance to that from some of my more seasoned RBTs because I'm the first person in their that entire career yeah, that is has ever structure. had that. And I'm like, this is an issue. Like this is, so again, of course I look like that. I am the anomaly. And that makes me look, again, tied into that whole like angry black woman or that makes me look really bad or that makes me look like, I care a lot more than maybe what I quote unquote should, because in their minds, they were just taught to like, literally force, like force, like compliance on autistic kids and also play little games a little bit. Yeah. And I'm am teaching them or trying to teach them all these ways of really like true behavior science. And it's just, and my leadership is also not backing me up because I'm also an anomaly within my professional peers and it's it's that that it's tough is isolating very especially when you don't get the support Mm -hmm. the advocacy from your superiors that is isolating and it really does make you feel like okay am i crazy yeah is it me yeah especially i think too when 
it's like at a baseline, like one uh, antecedent strategy, I think that as leaders, we all need is to really intentionally create certain spaces where even if, you know, we disagree with whoever it is that, you know, we're leading and supporting, even if we, um, you know, just don't see eye to eye, even if we have to tweak a few things, whatever, that there's a room for everybody to come to the table to present that and that they will be met with um, some kind of validation. They'll be met with understanding. They'll really just be met, period. Like, it is so... Because I think what happens is we start to engage in avoidant behavior where it's Mm -hmm. like, I'm just not going to go to my clinical director. I'm not going to go to, I don't know, my... um, my program chair. I'm not going to go to my commander. I'm not going to go to my whoever because I already know what the conversation is going to be like. They're going to, they're going to tell me some shit. I already know they're going to try to, you know, repeat an idea that I had like three months ago and propose it to me to try to fix this now issue, this, this whole other issue that I have. So then now it makes you involuntarily complicit, which again adds to this resentment. Yeah. So when we come back, I want to kind of talk about, I want to take, I wanted to kind of do like two prongs. Mm-hmm. The first being kind of what do we do? Like, what do we do with this girl? And then the second prong or what have we done maybe? And then the second prong being, um, what are some advice that we would have to leaders, both um, in both of our fields? Okay. So let's talk about what we do as leaders to I, I don't even know if we can say fix it, but it, but to at least serve as a buffer, mm-hmm. to at least serve as an agent of change. I will tell you what I did mm-hmm. and, and what I learned from it and what I can hope to do in the future, right? So for me, um, my particular section managed the COVID testing site, managed the like the urgent care COVID site managed the vaccination site and still had to do all of the other operational stuff within the hospital. We were sending people all across the world for COVID response. We're still doing day-to-day patient care. And at one point it became so overwhelming for um, our staff. I wasn't doing half the shit they were doing. It was a quarter of the shit they were doing. I'm simply facilitating this, putting the right people in place, answering emails, going to meetings, all this other stuff. It was even crushing for me. So I know they were having a hard time. And of the 10 of us, I want to say there were maybe three of us that were on our soapboxes at every meeting. Like, listen, you all have to do something. You like our staff, they're suffering. People are depressed. People are suicidal. Mm, Like families are falling apart. You guys have to stop some of this and you can. And it was met with um, just gaslighting and, you know, minimizing the problems and what we kept doing we just kept speaking out, kept speaking out, kept speaking out. But like I said, there were three of maybe 10 of us. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at our peers who when we're all together. You know, we're talking about it. They have complaints and data and all this other stuff that they, you know, want to present, but they never speak up. One even said, you know, he's like, I just, I don't want to rock the boat, you know. Mm-hmm. And one guy said, I'm just waiting for the, you know, the right opportunity. When, look at your staff members and right. you tell me when you think the, t- the opportunity is going to be more, you know, mean more soon. So um, it got to a point where 
it wore at our resolve. And at one point we all looked at each other and we were like, I, I, I'm, this is the last time I'm going to speak up. But remember that my section was the one that managed all of this stuff. So what I tried to do was execute all this stuff while still being the one to speak up. But there was no change that was happening. And I'm going to tell you what ended up happening is it crushed me. Mm. Cr like crushed me like I've never been crushed before to the point of like negative tired. Mm. And I think in the beginning, I thought, okay, I can either be complicit or I can be an agent of change. I can affect positive change. Why? Because everyone below me, that's that's my duty to them. That's what they deserve. Because if not, who's going to do it? Mm -hmm. I don't want it to be, you know, somebody commit suicide. And that's when we care. Like I was thinking more, you know, preventive measures. Right. Um, and I, it went from I can either be complicit or I can be agent of change to where I couldn't I couldn't do anything. <laughs> like I just was like paralyzed by it in the end. And so when we think of like what we can do, I honestly don't even know at this point. Like that taught me that I don't even know. Because when you are trying to steer a ship that big and, uh, and you are one of, you know, so many thousand people or so many hundred leaders and no one else is helping you, with the sales or none of that other shit, then it's just nothing's gonna happen. Yeah. So it's like you have to decide, do I just keep am I gonna be that rebel vigilante? I have the spirit to do it, certainly. But I mean, I'm but like, could I do to, it again? But also you have to you have to contact reinforcement in order for you to keep going. Like mm -hmm. what you experienced and what I experienced was literally a punishment procedure and it worked to some degree you mm -hmm. know what i mean like mm -hmm. it, it shut you up mm -hmm. um i don't know i think for me like what i almost said it shut me up because i went down fighting but i true. got steamrolled that's, that's, <laughs> that's true um i don't know so i think for me like i mean I so as a whole let me ask you this yeah so then going to because you know my anxiety my anxiety is going to i'm going to another clinical organization mm -hmm. we're still you know kind of in the grips of COVID. Mm -hmm. And if I were to face something like that again, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? What would be your advice? I think my advice for you at the onset is like when you meet with like your- Resistance. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you meet with resistance. No, no, no. And, uh, when you meet with like your, you know, new command team literally talking about your experience and, and ending, ending up like ending your summary with, is there room for me really here? And almost like asking them for like the expectation management, like, is there really room like for my voice here? Or do you all expect me to operate in the capacity of literally just like signing in and out every day? I think from, I think, expectation management and granted again we're talking about in my opinion a system of white supremacy no one is going to be like okay well jamie like we just want you to shut up and like punch in and punch out but i think even kind of putting that in people's minds of like no really like what do you want of me like as a leader here like really what are you looking for i think i, I just kind of wonder if that would kind of place an expectation management kind of contingency with you um, Dr. Danielle, I feel like I keep bringing her up. Uh, one of the things that she talks a lot about 
is really kind of learning essentially like the system within a system, like what has the stimulus control, like what's this SD or what's this SD to like what part of the system can she actually change mm -hmm. versus what part of the system is kind of like her like beating a dead horse mm -hmm. and then learning how to protect herself within this system that really is, again, like you said, it's a huge, well-oiled machine that was meant to make us feel this way. And I think you more than me due to like the confines of, of your career, like in comparison to mine, there is this, and you know, I hate this. I resist this like Danielle and I, but heads about, but it heads about this. Um, there is going to kind of be, have to be for you, I think more so than me, this level of, acceptance that. of what you can't change that. unless which again we're talking about white supremacy culture because the likelihood of because the likelihood of you being around like-minded people is slim to none mm -hmm. um so i think there is going to have to be this level of like acceptance of like this is what it is i can change these things over here and i have to honor the fact that that only feels but so enough not try to like sugarcoat it not try to like toxically like positivity up where it's like, well, that should feel like enough. No, like for people with our personalities, that's not, mm -hmm. but learning to accept that and sit in the fact that like, it's cool that that doesn't feel enough. I'm still going to do it because I'm not going to kill myself for this job. Yeah. And that's the reason why I say, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because, um, it's really like a tug of war between the rebel vigilante that wants to just make positive change so that everyone can thrive. And then also, as you said, accepting like, I can't change these things. But you know what it is too? I think my situation taught me that I still made positive change. It just it was not what I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. So with me as a recap, um, Essentially, like I am still for one more week working in a system that I don't know. I don't know. How, I don't even know how I would describe it. The it, same thing. It literally, yeah, it's like yeah, the exact the same, same thing, thing that you described, just, you know, in my field. Um, and there was no support. And so for me, what I chose to do with my staff, especially my staff who were or are in school um, and end up being three black RBTs at the time, um, which even that, seeing the discomfort that even my company had with that, it's a whole other thing. But anyways, um, I wanted to be open with them about it. And I wanted them to understand what exactly was going on in a way that I wish that when I was an RBT, my BCBAs would have taught me about. I didn't, I, I knew the politics of white supremacy, right? I've been black all my life, but I didn't know the politics that kind of come with being like a BCBA. You kind of, I feel like in our field, you're kind of taught like, well, once you pass your boards, like there's like this respect that you're just automatically mm -hmm. going to get. And it, it just is not the case, at least not for me as a black, you know, BCBA. Because um, you're going to be discredited. You know what you're I mean? Be, yeah. So anyways, it just got to a point where, um, long story short, I was, was, quite literally unethically like pulled off all my cases for for no reason at all and this this uh person who prompted that to happen played um played the white supremacy card in the best way and it worked and for me I am learning through this process I'm very big on justice like I'm like I did not do anything wrong like I didn't do anything wrong 
they end up pulling all my RBTs off. I'm like, they didn't do anything or this, any other. And what I now know though, is the change. And again, this is obviously within like hindsight, although I'm still very pissed off about it, as you know, I'm very hurt about it. The change that I made or I was supposed to make was not necessarily supposed to be within the system that I thought I was trying to affect. My change likely is going to happen with my staff. So I'm creating the next level of change makers. So within the midst of all this stuff that was going on, my RBTs who are within like this kind of um, hierarchy, if you will, Mm -hmm. like the lowest people on this hierarchy exercised so much bravery and also speaking their minds exercise in the game of their hourly employees, right? Mm -hmm. Exercise so much bravery and really speaking up and speaking out, not only about what was happening to me and them, but also our scholars and how like our scholars were being impacted by, you know, all of these things. Um, So much so that, I mean, they really just exercised, you know, their privilege and what it is and, and them like seeing some of them kind of from when they first started to, you know, how they are now, where like they're uncomfortable with things now that maybe before they either weren't uncomfortable with or they would not have even pointed out or whatever. What I'm realizing now, and I'm still not over this need for justice because I did not get my justice and I will find a way to get it before <laughs> we leave this island. You should see the passion. Because <laughs> I, re- I really will. In her eyes. But to know that like, I have a hand in that, like to know Absolutely. that they are like living out, like as their supervisor, especially um, for my three black clinicians. And the reason why I'm saying that is because it, I'm very intentional on teaching them um, in a very, I hope, effective way, like conver- and having conversations like this, like you and I are having now with them. Um, I'm like, yo, like that's it. And I think what's hard is that I don't think of change on like that micro level. In my mind, I'm like, well, that's the micro level, like yeah. affecting your staff. Yeah. Or that's what I'm supposed to do. That's the yeah. least I can yeah. do. But what I'm now learning with all these new, newer professional connections that I've made, or even some of the older ones, is that like, no, like they're going to be the next me's. So they're not going to have to talk about a podcast about this one day, or their RBTs aren't going to have to talk on a podcast about this one day. And I have to really try to almost like, like have, like I have to figure out like who, what my target behavior is that I'm trying to target. (laughs) And I have to learn that likely it's not going to be the system because it's probably going to be a very long time that I'm operating alongside of somebody who's willing to ride, like in the way I'm willing to ride. So then my question, my next question is for Dr. Danielle, when you listen to this, how do you accept the fact that you can only make change in these small areas of the system when you are so greatly impacted by the system as a whole? And I think that's that is that goes back to why I say I don't know. I don't know how I would handle this in the future, and I don't know the answer for it. Yeah. Because you want to change the system when you're so greatly impacted by it. Yeah, but you can't. Okay, so I know that the second prong I was talking about was a message for leaders. And I I feel like, um, you know, it's hard, again, it's hard to kind of give a message to leaders 
who are also operating, you know, um, in a system that that is not necessarily for them, depending on who they are and their intersectionalities. So, but one thing I do just want to say is I think it's very, very important for us to really do our own internal work. I think it's very important for us to really understand our own privileges and our own marginalized identities and how we can really leverage our privileges, how we can utilize our privileges. Um, because it really does help, like when you really are working alongside someone who um, will not just talk shit with you, but also like ride and go to bat for you and with you alongside of you to really evoke this like positive systemic change. So I think for me, like that would be like the the main piece of advice that I can kind of um, think of right now at the top of my head, like really utilizing and leveraging your privileges to make these changes and then linking up with people who also have those same kind of values. Um, yeah. And I think for me, it would be know when you were at the end of your rope mm. so that but, you could preserve your energy. Well, I am going to quote Dr. Danielle and not waiting until you are uh, until you are at max, like peak distress to yes. get your needs met. Yes. I love it. I just I love Danielle. I can't say it enough. I know. Like she's just. Gym dropper. The gym, gym dropper, dropper. She's just so warm. So and, good. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I do just want to do something. I don't think uh, I have ever done this before. I don't know. But it's just really important that I say this. I want to dedicate this episode. I'm not going to say anybody's name. But for real, I do want to dedicate this episode to my former RBTs here in Hawaii. You all know who you are. I am. Oh, my God. I'm tearing up. I'm so proud of you all. Um, I'm so grateful that um, you all did everything that you did. Um, and I'm just really, really excited that I got to have a hand in the next change makers of the field of behavior analysis. So yeah. Bye. All right, y'all, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me on Love, Sex, and Applied Behavior Analysis, the podcast where pop culture and ABA meet. Bye.